Hey everyone, it's Chad. Welcome back to Mission Daily. We have a giveaway for everyone that enters. You can win a prize at mission.org slash books. Steph, what can people win? Books that you love. Do you want to read like a CEO? Chad has a bookshelf that probably has, I was actually calculating in my head how much you've probably spent on books because there's so many in our studio. I'd say there's probably 500 here. So a fraction. You, this is, you don't even know about the hidden libraries oh, I have stored oh in my parents' garage. Oh, I forgot about that. Well, anyways, it's called Read Like a CEO because we are taking books off of Chad's bookshelf and we are putting it in a giveaway. Books are the best investment in yourself. And the reason why we wanted to do this giveaway, I recently started paying myself a salary. Yay, woo! And which is a major milestone. And I wanted to immediately give back to everyone out there that's listening that has helped us get where we're at. And it's really exciting. So this is my way of saying thank you to the listeners. So at mission.org slash books, uh, I picked out a number of books from my bookshelf and the top 30 people who enter. And you can see how to get more entries, all that stuff at mission.org slash books. Uh, but the top 30 people who enter get to pick one book from this list and I'll mail you a physical copy. I'll buy it. The next 15 get three books. So if you're in the top 15, you get three books from the list, your picks. And if you're in the top five, you get five books each. So this is pretty cool. And you can get more entries for every single email uh, subscriber you refer. Yep. And stay tuned for the next little ad segment because we will tell you why Chad picked some of these books to get you excited. (laughs) And mission.org slash books, go there, enter. And everyone who enters is going to get a copy of 100 Business Ideas. That's an ebook we created with 100 ideas to start making more money and yeah, maybe even start a business uh, this weekend. Yep. So enter the giveaway and good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hello, and welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. In this episode, Chad speaks with Sander Daniels. Sander is co-founder of Thumbtack, which he helped start with two friends while in his second year of law school. After focusing on Thumbtack's product and marketing, Sander now works full-time on building Thumbtack's culture and values. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Sander from Thumbtack. Sander, thank you for joining us. Chad, thanks for having me. So we were talking a little bit before the interview kicked off and I would love to go back to 2008. So take me back to 2008. What are you up to? What's going on? And what does your world look like back then? My world back then was very different than the world today. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. I always, from a very early age, felt lucky about the opportunities I've been given. It was nothing crazy out of the ordinary, but I felt a responsibility to give back and create opportunities for others when I grew up. And so the first turn that took was in college when I studied liberal arts, politics, philosophy, history, in addition to engineering. And I said, well... Uh, law, public policy is an important way to make change in the world. And so I followed that up with law school. And I went to law school and I was there for three years, finished it out. But while I was there, I kept in touch with a couple friends from college and they had gone that same route. They were working at the White House during that period for the same reasons I was at law school. 
And we got together and said, well, politics is one way to make a big impact on the world, but there's another way. And that other way is technology. So we had weekly phone calls for a year where we brainstormed ideas of things we could start that if successful would create opportunity for people. And we were not set on it being a tech company. We were considering nonprofit organizations, political advocacy firms. But what we eventually landed on was the idea for Thumbtack. The reason we landed on the idea for Thumbtack was because we looked around and we said, there's a real human problem here. On the one hand, you have service professionals is what we call them. For them, their number one concern is where do I find a customer? Where do I put money in my pocket next? Food on the table for my family next? And for consumers, there was an equally difficult human problem. Where do I find trustworthy, reliable help for the right price? And it was pretty clear that the solutions out there were broken. It was yellow pages being delivered to people's doorsteps. It was people stapling moving flyers to telephone poles or thumbtacking their yoga business card to coffee shop bulletin boards. And we said, that's not how that's going to be done in the future. We looked around and we saw there were these global marketplaces for products, Amazon, eBay, Alibaba, but there was no global marketplace for services yet. So we said, let's go build that. And that is still what we are going after today. And that local service market and the small business economy, a lot of people don't realize how large it is. It's the backbone of the American economy, arguably. Uh, how big is it and why does it matter so much in your view? It's huge. It's we estimate a $700 billion market in the United States alone. And a lot of people talk about the gig economy. We feel like we are operating in the real economy. This is a place, uh, so the average job size on Thumbtack is very substantial in the many, many hundreds of dollars. And the we believe that a very important part of building a path to the middle class for in an age of technology is the service industry. Tech will do a lot over the years to change jobs and how people work, but one thing that's not going away is service jobs, and they will be continue to be an important and growing part of the economy in the future. And these are high-paying jobs too. So a quick story and aside, we recorded a season of one of our podcasts in New York two months ago, and we had everything lined up. We had scheduled Alec Baldwin, who was doing the narration. We were so excited. We had a videographer set up, a studio and everything. And we got into New York. We're putting the final touches on the narration and our videographer bails on us. So we're at the hotel. We found out that he wasn't going to be able to be there. I think at like 1130 at night. Seriously, I get onto Thumbtack at it's probably midnight and I put out a response for or a request for videographers. Probably 15 minutes later, I'm on the phone with uh, John, who has a deep background in video production. He's worked with a bunch of celebrities before. Uh, he's like, yep, I'll be there tomorrow bright and early. He was at a job when we spoke. So, I mean, a couple hours later, we're meeting him at the studio. He knocks it out of the park. We're good to go. We have video. But that type of instant answer to your service request is what you're providing. And a lot of people think like service jobs, they're low paying. That's hasn't been my experience. A lot of these service professionals are making, I would say, upper middle class income. Could you share a little bit about what type of opportunities you're creating for people at Thumbtack? That's right. So, so many of these jobs are very high paying. You're talking 50,000, 60,000 and significantly above annual income for many of these people. 
We very strongly believe that just like Amazon brought products online, just like the dating apps brought dating online, Airbnb, housing, Uber and Lyft, cars, in the future, it's going to feel just as antiquated to ask your neighbor for a plumber recommendation or a parent at your kid's school for a tutor recommendation or a friend who just got married for a wedding photographer recommendation as it does to ask a friend for uh, an intro to a date or to walk to the corner store to buy a product or to whatever. So we we feel like this instant product is where the future of services is going. People want instant gratification to know immediately the quality of the people they are hiring, the price range today that doesn't exist online. And it feels inevitable that it's going to happen in the future. Yeah. And it's like when you're creating a request too, you're not just asking somebody for a recommendation. So when you're using Thumbtack, you're basically pinging or putting your opportunity in front of uh, dozens, if not hundreds of local service professionals. So it's, uh, yeah, it's solving a, a really big challenge there. So take me back again to 2008. You're talking with your friends that would become your co-founders. You're brainstorming on ideas and everything. How did that process of coming together and building that shared history impact the future culture at Thumbtack? Can you tell me about like what were your conversations like? How did you build those relationships with your co-founders? It was in the early extremely days? important. I got very lucky and fell in with a great group of people. The early team and the early founders are still some of my best friends in the entire world. There are not many founders, I think, who can say that after 10, 11 years. And here we are just this morning. I was hanging out with Marco just last night. I was talking to Jonathan. And that friendship and relationship is honestly the closest relationship I have with anyone in my life other than my wife of 14 years. And we have very deliberately nurtured those relationships and done a lot of work to maintain them. And in fact, a lot of the things I've learned at work are things I've brought home to my family life to improve it there as well. And a couple examples. So uh, we, we can talk about the early days in a second, but I'll fast forward a little bit sure. to 2013 when we raised our Series C round. For four or five years, we had kind of wandered in the wilderness a little bit without much recognition. And then there was this period where a lot of what we had been working on connected, came online, and we got very rapid funding from a number of bigger investors. And our series investors came to us, our series C investors came to us and they said, Congratulations, now it's time to grow up. And what that meant for us was a couple things. First, hiring an exec team. And so we went out and we hired leaders of all our different departments over the following 18, 24 months. But the other thing was hiring executive coaches. And that process of hiring an executive coach was one of the most powerful processes I have ever been through in my entire life. I will never forget how this went. They came in and they had a 125 question survey that asked wow. all kinds of questions about how you operate. And then they said, okay, give us a list of the 7, 10, 12 people in your life who are closest to you, friends, family, work. We're going to administer this survey to them. They go, I give them the list. They administer the survey. We come back. They sit me down in a room. And if I were ever under any illusions previously about what I was good and not good at, well, then in that moment, they were entirely shattered. And 
we all went through that process and it was the most difficult personal transformation process I have ever been through because I, it, well, I strongly believe that we are all on our journeys and none of us is perfect and we all have our strengths and all have our weaknesses. And the best thing we can do is to look at our strengths head on and lean into those and look at our weaknesses and work with a group to improve them and compensate for them. And so I had to do that for the first time ever. It was the first time I ever got direct raw feedback and it was very hard. I had to change important core parts of my personality to be able to succeed and scale myself to the next level at the company, but I did it. I got through it. And after 12 or 18 months, I had changed those parts of me that were holding me back and now here we are. And we scaled that not just to us individually, but also us as founders. So over the years, we've hired a number of executive coaches and that have ranged from very scientific analysts to more therapist types, and it has all paid off in spades, and we still have a great relationship. I love that story because it's something that we're all scared of getting objective feedback, but objective feedback from others in a, a safe place or an environment where we know others are going to support us in confronting that, it's so important. Could you share any examples of, you know, specific examples where you were faced with something that you you weren't aware of and you confronted it and overcame it? Is there anything specific there that you can share? Yeah. With regard to how I was operating, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the main piece of feedback I got was that I spoke in exaggerations and I am a deep optimist. And so everything for me was the greatest thing in the world or or this is not going to work at all, or I, I, was, I was blinded by optimism. And so, and, and the way I used words was, like I said, exaggerated. And so the coaches came to me and they said, Sander, everyone loves you. You're a cultural pillar at Thumbtack, but the way that you talk and exaggerate is totally undercutting your team's judgment in, in you. And so nobody trusts what you say because everything's great or gonna be great. And so I took that feedback to heart and it was really hard to hear because many of my personal friendships and relationships were built on that. And I was loud and funny and kind of the, the center of the party, but turned out that at work, at least that was really holding me back. And so for the next 12 to 18 months, I went through a process where I had to very seriously identify those times and places that I was using language that wasn't accruing to my goodwill at work and moderate myself basically. And I did that. And now when somebody talks to me and meets me, they say, wow, I can't believe you were ever like that because you seem so reasonable and I trust your judgment. But turns out that that process of maturation really was a really critical part of my personal development. And in the early days of building a company, it's so tempting to, because I, I immediately recognize that in myself, that tendency. And it's so tempting though, to go towards that because you have limited time, limited resources, and you can't really be wishy-washy with things. And there isn't a lot of time to analyze over decisions. That's really, really hard to confront. Do you think that executive coaching or whether it's through an executive coach or a therapist, is that something that you think every founding team needs to pursue? Is that something that you advocate for other founders? 
Well, listen, I think any founding team absolutely should do it. And really any person should sure. be seeking feedback as much as they can. And so f- sure, for founders specifically, I think that the founder relationship is critically important. It's kind of like the parents, the core of the family. And let's try to keep that relationship as healthy as we can for as long as we can. And the founders aligned. So many startups stumble and fail because of a broken founder relationship. And you want to try to avoid that own goal. And so I think that structured conversations, third parties helping you through whatever disagreements you have help. Listen, there's going to be so many disagreements along the way, small and big. It's like a marriage, you know, things things come up in life and you're going to have different viewpoints. But having somebody there to support you in a structured way is really important and to put the mirror up against your face and reflect it back at you and say, here's what people are seeing and hearing when you do certain behaviors. It's, I think a lot of people are scared of receiving feedback. Another part of it is the other side of the coin. A lot of people are scared of giving feedback. And so it is very rare to get candid feedback about how you're performing and how people perceive you. But I would recommend to anybody listening that you do anything you can to get that candid raw feedback from from people who are close to you, even if it hurts, because hearing that and internalizing it and working on a deliberate plan to change those behaviors that might not be working in your favor will accrue to you for your entire life and accelerate you very rapidly on your professional, in your professional career. And what would you say to someone who's looking to improve their ability to give feedback? So for me, giving uh, honest and objective feedback can be a challenge. There have been past incidents in my life where I felt like I've attempted to do that and it's been met with hurt relationships. Uh, some Sometimes relationships have ended when I've attempted to give honest feedback. So there's definitely some past trauma I have with giving honest feedback, or at least I remember it that way. Any advice you would have for me or somebody else who's struggling with giving honest feedback? Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is you are not alone. Uh, giving feedback, there, there are certain people I have seen who it seems like they have a natural gift and ability to give candid feedback, but I would say 97% of people in the world, you have to really cultivate it and be deliberate mm-hmm. about practicing it over the years. So very, very tactically, first, you can't give critical feedback without having a foundation of trust and support underneath it. That's why things like team building exercises and going out and having dinner occasionally with your reports and the people who you work with and getting to know their families and knowing what happened last weekend with them is a really important part of work life. A lot of people dismiss those types of things and think, oh, it's inefficient or whatever. But those getting to know people personally and making people understand that you have their back personally and professionally is critical to giving anybody honest feedback. And then once you have that foundation of trust, you have to be very thoughtful about how you give feedback. So when you give positive feedback, it's okay to be general and laud praise on people. 
the more examples, the better, but you're not going to go wrong by saying, hey, you're just doing an awesome job. Now, with critical feedback, you are going to go very wrong if you say, hey, you're doing a crappy job and you just leave it there. Instead, the best way I've seen to deliver constructive feedback is to identify very specific examples of behaviors that or words that people are using that are not serving them well. And if you can replay those behaviors back to the person or the words that they are using back to the person in very specific ways and say, in this particular situation, I heard you use these words or exhibit this behavior, and I saw that the effect it had on XYZ person around you was the following, then that is, I think, the best way to deliver constructive feedback. It depersonalizes it. People understand that you are going to bat for them and you have their back. But in this particular example, this thing wasn't working for you. That's awesome advice. And I feel like we're starting to present a foundation of how you build culture and a healthy culture at a company. So that has been one of your many hats and one of your many areas that you've owned at Thumbtack over the years. Could you tell us a bit about your philosophy on culture building and maybe how you got into it and how you got started with it? So we have a very long-term outlook on this business. The opportunity we are going after is gigantic. And a very important reason that we started it is because we care about people. And we believe that there is so much human potential in the world that has yet to be unlocked. And so our business itself is out there trying to give people with skills access to the market. But we take that same philosophy internally. We believe people internally and our employees have skills and potential that has yet to be unlocked. And it is our job, our responsibility to make sure everyone can bring the best version of themselves to work, that they are able to bring their whole selves to work, that they are operating in a safe, supportive environment where they can be creative, where they can take risks and fail without fear of retribution, where they can be supported in finding and identifying those strengths and leveraging them and identifying those weaknesses and working together and being open with others about them to improve them. And so building this culture and company has always, of course, had great business benefit because the better culture you build, the more you're able to retain and attract new talent. But even more importantly, it's just we believe the right thing to do and the way that we are wired. And so from the very early days, we have focused heavily on people and culture. And then me personally, I've formalized it over the last three years or so and spent almost my full time on people, culture, values, employee engagements, people analytics, recruiting. So when you're thinking about values, that that can be a uh... It's definitely a tricky area and it's a it's a big challenge to figure out what type of company values you want to embody. And then, yeah, because you have to create opportunities for others to experiment and display those values. What values do you have as a company and how do you go about implementing them? So how do you go past the talking and into implementation? Well, we do have four core values at our company and they're 
they're around the office. You can see them. But there's a few that I think are particularly unique to us. So one is what we call reason from first principles. And what that means is we are our own business, solving our own problem for the first time. We are not going to be able to find the solution by looking outwards and copying what others are doing. In fact, many of the decisions we made in the very early days were very much against the status quo or the assumed right way to do things, which then led to our success. And so we architect ways to reason from first principles in the building and make sure that people aren't just copy-pasting what they've done previously. Another one that gets perhaps even more to how people behave in the building is make each other better. And so we architect as much as we can ways for people individually, on teams, and at the company level to assess themselves and ourselves as a business, talk about it publicly, figure out how to grow even more into our strengths, and how to improve or complement our weaknesses. So one example, so, so much of culture and values is not just words on paper, but really how the team behaves and the leadership behaves. One example of how we exhibit, we try to exhibit these values is every six months, we go through a 360 review cycle at company-wide where everybody gives and receives reviews from their reports, from their colleagues, and from their manager. We then do the following at the leadership level. Each leader drafts a one-pager that summarizes what they've heard in that feedback followed by two or three high-level action items that they're going to work on over the next six months. And then we collate all of those eight, nine, ten one-pagers into a document, and we circulate it company-wide. And what this does is it showcases to the team first that none of us is perfect. We are all on our journeys, and what we want to do is identify what's working and do great there and identify what's not working and work with each other to improve. Another thing that showcases is that having areas to improve is nothing to be ashamed about. In fact, the greatest thing you can do for yourself and for the company is talk about them publicly. I mean, if you have weaknesses, we all do. It's not a secret to the people that you're working with. I can guarantee that. And so you should do everything you can to be out there getting help from people and talking about those and acknowledging them. And then finally, coupled with all that, is that it showcases we want to put action against words and the feedback. And so we very publicly put those two or three things out there that we are going to work on with specific goals we are working towards that hold us accountable to the team about what we're working on. We aren't satisfied with saying, no, we're not great here. Instead, we have to say, okay, we're not great here and we're going to do something about it. So in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, recruiting and retention are probably the number one or number two challenge for most companies. How have you seen this type of review process and working with individuals and having that 
measured path to personal improvement. How have you seen that improve retention and really give people energy in their jobs? Because I, I feel like that's what a lot of people are looking for is the type of structure and ways they're looking for smart ways to grow basically. And, and they want to do it with a team. Yeah. For the type of talent that we're working with and do attract a thumbtack, listen, people are looking for personal growth and fulfillment. And so we see our role as, of course, running a 360 process that improves business outcomes. But even more fundamentally, it's about making sure that everybody here feels like Thumbtack is an important part of their personal and professional journey and that they are growing and developing in the ways that they want in a structured way. And so, you know, in the early days at a startup, oftentimes this stuff is very unstructured. The way people give and receive feedback is unstructured. There's no real leveling system or promotions. People don't have clarity into what does the next level look like for me? What are the skills that you expect of me to get to the next stage in my career? And over the last few years, as we've scaled the company to six, 800 people now, we have built all of that infrastructure. And I can tell you that the feedback on before and after is day and night. Before, people told us in our semi-annual employee engagement survey that, hey, I love working at Thumbtack. I love the mission. I love my colleagues and the culture you've built, but I don't have a lot of clarity into what the next step is in my career. And now that we've built all that infrastructure, people are, the, the, the data shows people are way more engaged and people will give you the benefit of the doubt because, okay, this part of the job and the company might not be going that great. But in this other area, I see a clear path for growth and development and it's going awesome. So talk to me a little bit about work-life balance or work-life integration or whatever you want to call it. Because in prepping for the interview, I noticed you're married, you have a family, one kid or, or one, two yeah, child? Yeah, two. Yep. So what's, what's it like for you integrating your work and your life and what's your philosophy there? Uh, this, this gets to, again, we have a very long term and always have had a very long term outlook on Thumbtack. Now, in the very early days, it was 24-7. It was a bunch of us in an apartment living above the Castro, cranking and... We had a contest at one point to see who couldn't leave the office for the longest <laughs> period of time. And the winner was 30 days. You know, it was just kind of a mess. It was classic <laughs> early day startup type thing. But we very quickly saw, okay, this is not a one-year journey or a three-year journey. This is a 10, 20, 30-year journey. And in order to sustain that, we cannot, we, we have to architect this in a way where we don't burn out. And so we were the only people, things wouldn't get done without us in the very early days. It was 24 seven, but then we ended up building a team and culture that was very family friendly. A couple of us were married pretty early on and young and we were having kids and we said, okay, we want to be a grown up adult mature company that withstands the test of time. And so 
We want to make it so that hours and FaceTime in the office isn't everything. Of course, we're going to hold you to high expectations of what you produce in your job. But in this day and age, you can get a lot of work done from home. We trust you. If you have doctor's appointments or caretaking duties, personally, our schedule that we've worked out in my household is I do all the mornings with both children. And so I do wake up, hand off the baby to the nanny, take the second grader to school, and then I'm at the office around 8.30, and then I'm home, and then my wife does all the evenings, but I'm home two to three nights a week at 5 or 5.30 to also help out. And we're, we have pretty light weekends at work as well. So that's kind of how we've architected it. And, you know, startups, they they are a marathon, but the winners of marathons are sprinting the entire way. And so, <laughs> yeah, we have to sprint, but we have to balance that with a healthy life. I love it. Well said. So outside of uh, work and family life, do you have any hobbies? Do you have any, do you read a lot? What are you doing to re-energize yourself? How are you taking time out for yourself? Two things. First, I'm a big fiction reader and I have always believed deeply in liberal arts and the way that studying the liberal arts builds empathy for people in the world. And I think empathy is a critical attribute for being able to scale a company and build a product that people love. Then the second thing is concerts. So my wife and I, we have a rule where we love, we love music, but we don't listen to it unless more than 50 million other people listen to it as well. And so <laughs> we go to all the big stadium concerts at, uh, in the Bay Area. And so last month, there were two nights in a row where we went to San Jose. One night was Phil Collins, and we were the youngest, most energetic people in the building. And then the next <laughs> night was Drake, and we were the oldest, calmest people in the building. <laughs> I love it. So let's talk about fiction for a second. So what's your favorite fiction book that you've read or series? Oh my gosh, that is a very hard one. So there is a book called A Little Life. I can't pronounce the author's name. It was a very popular book about four years ago. And it is about four college friends and their life journeys thereafter it is in some respects a very tragic book, but it really reveals the full depth, I think, of the human experience and the incredible elation, happiness that comes with living a full life and also the risks that come with living a full life and the depths and tragedies that can accompany that. I thrive on on living as much as I can and experiencing the full breadth of, of the human experience. And I can celebrate and have fun with the best of them. And I feel like I also want to be able to be there to be prepared personally, but also to support those around me when they're going through hard times. So yeah, that's, that's the type of literature I love. And fiction seems to be in, at least in my life, a great way to prepare for the really, really hard things in life because you can experience, you know, horrible things through fiction and vicariously that you couldn't otherwise experience in your own life. Do you view fiction as a vehicle? You mentioned empathy, but do you view it as a vehicle to prepare basically, or maybe you're training your mind? Absolutely. I think 
Yeah, I'm learning every day and nonfiction kind of comes naturally. But I think that oftentimes fiction is undervalued, perhaps um, particularly in Silicon Valley among technologists. It's a way to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and to take yourself into a totally different place and perspective. And we live in our own heads all the time. And if you are able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a few hours with an incredible book, then I think you are preparing yourself, to your point, for what might come in the future in different situations that that will face you than you could ever imagine. I mean, at Thumbtack, I never never imagined that I would build a a business. I thought I was going to be a lawyer in D.C. or in politics my entire life. And we have... We have grown so fast, and this has been such an incredible journey with so many highs and also tough times. And you never know what's around the corner. You never know what's going to come at you when you walk into the office the next day. And there are many things I've done to prepare for that experience. Is Just experience and having been there through those times has been the number one thing I would say. But the number two thing is reading and reading fiction in particular. And one more thing I, I wanted to ask you as we get to the end of our interview here, how have you in Thumbtack and with your co-founders dealt with rejection? Because rejection is something that we all face. And if you're building a business, you're going to face it again and again and again, uh, whether you're talking to investors or you're trying to close a partnership and you meet rejection, it can be very tempting to shut down or decide, oh, I'm not going to work with that person ever. How have you and and your co-founders dealt with rejection? And can you share a story about how you got past it or maybe collaborated with someone in the future? Oh my gosh, Chad, we've been rejected so many times. At this point, (laughs) it's just second nature. Um, So we, so a, a very clear story of us getting rejected was we were, we spent the first three, four years of this business under the radar, kind of wandering in the wilderness, trying to figure out how to build this thing. How, how do you build supply at scale? How do you build demand at scale in a marketplace? Then how do you monetize it? And there was a period in 2010, 2011, when we thought we were hot stuff and we went out to raise money. And we talked to VCs. Initially, they, they kind of put us on ice. We talked to more VCs. And fast forward, five, six months, it's getting to the winter of 2010. We're running out of money. We're writing layoff plans for ourselves and basically our entire team. Now, after talking to 46 venture capital firms, one of them that we talked to finally did come in and and give us a yes, but that traumatized us. And we said, never again are we going to put ourselves in a position where we're at the mercy of someone else for our existence. So the following 18 months, we focused on nothing but revenue growth, and we figured out how to monetize this thing. And then that ended in another firm, Sequoia, investing in us, and very accelerated growth after that. Now, Failure is so important. I remember even before law school, in college, I maintained personally a list of things I have failed at. And I go, I can go back there and look at that list. It's like I every month I would say, hey, I screwed this up and I failed at it. And I don't know why intuition told me to maintain that list. I think the reason is because it would make me less scared about failure in the future. 
I could go back to that list and say, hey, I didn't get accepted into this program or this group rejected me or this person told me this idea was bad. And here I am one year later, three years later, and life went on. And in fact, it's better than ever. And so I think that keeping that in mind and maintaining perhaps a list like that for you so you can reflect on it in the future and not be as scared about failure is very, could be very helpful. Certainly was for me. That's great advice. I love it. And final question here, as we get ready to move, move on and uh, part ways, what is the best advice or a final call to action you have for anyone who is listening and saying, that's all great, but I don't know if I'm cut out for it. I don't know if I have what it takes. What would you say to people who are passionate, they're excited about things, but they're not quite sure that it's for them? I didn't think I was cut out for it. I didn't think I had what it takes. And the way to make it work is to take little chances, take little risks, understand and see that it's not the end of the world, that you get through them. Over time, you build confidence and faith in yourself that you can overcome obstacles and that you will succeed when you take those chances. And then you can turn the chances and the risks into bigger and bigger bets until finally something, until it's finally something great. I love it. Make little bets and uh, keep going. Sander, thanks so much for joining us and for everyone listening. We will see you next time. Thanks, Chad. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.